All right, good morning, um, everybody in person and for joining us on the live stream. We do get to start a new series today. Yes, okay, it's exciting, yeah, it's good. In the Gospel of Mark, it's actually going to take us from today all the way to Good Friday and Easter Sunday 2026. I'm just kidding, <laughs> 2022. Uh, and that was like an, an act of grace on your part because this easily could be a series that we preach through for hundreds of weeks. Uh, but we're gonna do it in four parts. We're gonna take breaks over the next year, do other mini series, other topical things, deal with other stuff as well. Uh, but we are gonna basically be in Mark for the next year. Uh, this week we sent out kind of a bit of a reading plan or a study guide for you. It will be on our website tomorrow as well at reachmtl.ca and you can find it there. But it'll give you a little bit of content text, a little bit of an introduction into Mark, a little bit of the historical backdrop about Mark as a person, the author, but then also the gospel itself. Um, and here's what we are doing and why we're doing Mark. We're doing Mark because in a time where there's so many different things that can come and fight for our attention and our energy and distract us, what we need to see in Mark is who Jesus is. And that is exactly why Mark writes the biography, the gospel, about Jesus the way that he does. Mark wants us, more than anything, to see the real Jesus and to experience the gospel that is wrapped up in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So if there's a thesis or a big idea that we see in Mark's gospel, it is who Jesus is. And all throughout the book, the question just hangs for everybody that he encounters throughout Mark, but it also hangs for us that we need to understand who Jesus is, the real Jesus of history. Not a recast Jesus, not a reinterpreted Jesus, not kind of our Jesus through, filtered through different cultural or theological lenses, but Jesus in the raw. Jesus, organic, gluten-free, no additives or preservatives, Jesus, right? The real Jesus. And all throughout the book, what you'll see as you read it and as we go, all throughout the book, people are very confused about who Jesus is. They're confused, they're perplexed, they're challenged, others are offended by who Jesus is, and Jesus continues to break all boxes of anticipation and expectation of who he is, who he's supposed to be, who they expected him to be, and then what he actually did. And the first figure in the book of Mark to accurately identify Jesus is demons. Okay, so this is convicting for us. Demons have better theology than most of us in the room, right? The first figure in the book to accurately identify Jesus as the Son of God, the Son of the Most High, is in chapter 5 when Jesus delivers a man of demonic possession and they recognize him for who he is for the first time. And that's very intentional that Mark does this, that everybody else is missing who he is, but there's something deeper beyond human experience and human expectation where Jesus is recognized at a deep, kind of eternal, supernatural and spiritual level by demons. And that just hangs the question throughout the book for you and I, who is this? <laughs> who is capable of doing what this man does? Who is capable of claiming what this man claims? And the same question is posed to us all throughout the book, who is Jesus? And then we get to the apex, kind of the capstone of the gospel in chapter 8, when Jesus finally, after a whole bunch of confusion and a whole bunch of being offended and perplexed about who he is, Jesus finally turns to his own apprentices, his own followers, and says, who do you say that I am? And that's kind of the apex of the whole book. Why? Well, because this question, who do you say that Jesus is? And who do I say that Jesus is? Is by far the most important question that any of us can ever ask or answer. And I don't want to ask that question lightly, nor do I want to ask that question of you today as if you've been around long enough that you could answer it. You go, I could tell you who Jesus is and then give me some heady kind of theological answer or some other version of an answer. I don't want to have an answer based on who your parents say Jesus is, who your friends say Jesus is, who your favorite celebrity or influencer or pastor or Christian figure say that he is. But how do you answer the question, who is Jesus? Today, this week, like right now, 
Not who was Jesus, not, not who Jesus will be or what he may do or what he has done, but who is Jesus? And the best way to kind of challenge your own understanding of this question is to just think about how you would answer that question if somebody else asked you now. Who is Jesus? You guys, you Christians talk about this Jesus guy a lot. Like, who is Jesus? And as you kind of work through that and understand that maybe we, we, we need to come and, and just like shed some of the preconceived notions or the, the things that we've adopted or the things that we've kind of absorbed about the identity of Jesus and who Jesus is so that we can come fresh to the gospel of Mark and watch how Mark just repeatedly comes and elevates Jesus like a diamond and shows us that it's multiple angles that we need to see Jesus from. We need to see Jesus in who he is, in what he said and in what he did and that it's all wrapped up in him. So Mark is really, really excited and really, really intentional about making this only and always centered on the person, work, and gospel of Jesus. That's why we're doing Mark. So my prayer all week for you, regardless of where you are currently on Jesus, or whether it's just kind of you're just starting to check Jesus out, that Mark would be able to kind of lay out a map for us and help us journey through, go on a bit of an expedition and see the different angles and perspectives like a kaleidoscope on the beauty of who Jesus is. That's what we want to do with this series. And here's why we start with this question. Because this question of who Jesus is, by far, is the stumbling block of Christian faith. It is the stumbling block. We can get into all sorts of debates about all sorts of stuff. And then we can kind of answer those and move on. It's all good. This is by far the stumbling block of the Christian faith. All of Christianity hinges on how we answer the question, who is Jesus? Now today, a lot of people struggle with answering this question because they either have an idea of who God is, they have a definition of what God is like and who God is, and then Jesus doesn't fit in that or they have an, an opinion or a perspective on who Jesus is and their understanding of God doesn't fit in that. And Mark is going to address both of these as we go. And he's going to challenge you and I and how often we will just crop out all of the things that we would rather not see about Jesus. That we just kind of like defang and declaw some of the things about Jesus. Or if it doesn't fit right within our theological hobby horses, we just kind of, well, maybe it wasn't in the original manuscripts and we just kind of dust it to the side. We crop out the stuff that doesn't tend to align with a preconceived notion that we already have about who Jesus is or what God is like. And Mark doesn't fight this tension or ignore this tension at all. He allows the tension to sit for you and I. That there's going to be confusion. That there's going to be kind of this sense of who is this? And there's lots of perspectives today that answer this question, Buddhism will say that Jesus is an enlightened teacher like Buddha, and his way will lead us into nirvana. Hinduism can come out and say that Jesus is one incarnation of the godness, kind of like Krishna. Islam can come and say that Jesus is a great prophet, but inferior to the great prophet Muhammad. Jehovah's Witnesses can come and say that Jesus is not God, but an incarnation of the archangel Michael. New Age spirituality can take Jesus and just take things and use them so that Jesus can be a way to go and, and experience self-consciousness, self-empowerment. Non-religious, secular people or atheists can have Jesus just be an interesting historical figure, but not really relevant unless you're into that kind of stuff. Notice that all of these descriptions of Jesus, all of these attempts to define who Jesus is, is an attempt to fit Jesus into an existing worldview or system of belief. And Mark doesn't do that. Mark just comes and he presents us with the real historical Jesus, the one who was promised and anticipated for thousands of years, the one who was rejected by the Jews for claiming to be God, and the one executed by Rome for claiming to be the God become man, king, and Lord. And Mark just presents us with all of this in the person of Jesus. So today's going to be a little bit of intro and then a little bit of a teaser, a little bit of an, an appetizer into how we're going to jump in fully next week and get going. Two notes really quickly by way of introduction so we get a little bit of context and backdrop because it's very important to understand. First of all, to understand Mark as a person, Mark as the author. 
His name is Mark, or often he's called John Mark, which in the first century they would often have a Hebrew name, which is John, and then a Greek name, Mark. So all of the Quebecers who are John Mark, they're like, eh, amen, yeah. Often he'll just be called Mark, though. And this, what we know about Mark or John Mark is that he was not himself an eyewitness to Jesus personally or a disciple of Jesus, but he was a very close disciple of disciples. We also know that he was the son of a widow named Mary, whose house, Mary's house in Acts, is used for prayer meetings for the, for the early church. And some commentators actually think that the Last Supper was held at John Mark's mom's house. Pretty fantastic. So we're talking about a lot of proximity with the very first eyewitness believers of Jesus and followers of Jesus. We also know that John Mark was Barnabas' cousin. If you know anything about Barnabas and Paul and kind of their missionary journeys together, we know that Mark is mentioned as traveling with his cousin Barnabas and Paul until they kind of have their little split and go off and decide we could probably be more effective away from each other. And then Mark actually becomes a very close friend of the apostle Peter and travel companion and secretary of sorts for Peter. And that's why he actually includes more details about Peter than any other gospel writer, because he's with him, right? He's like, oh, I just, I know what Peter's saying. So he, he was the secretary for Peter, writing down all of Peter's uh, eyewitness record and experiences of Jesus and the local church. But we also know that Mark was celebrated in early church history as an incredibly brilliant writer. He's a literary genius, and I'm going to point out stuff as we go through the book because it's hard in English. We just miss it, right? Like we translate any language, you just tend to miss some of the original oomph. Okay, I'm going to point stuff out as we go. But he is an absolute literary genius. And he takes not just kind of eyewitness record and then like coldly kind of just writes it down for us, but he creates it into this dramatic, fast-paced narrative that really just kind of wraps us up. And it's amazing to look at the time span because the first eight chapters of Mark covers a few years of Jesus's ministry. And it's fast. It's just like this crazy, dramatic pace where there's all sorts of craziness happening. And then from not, chapter nine to 16, the rest of the book only show three weeks. So we go from multiple years really, really fast to the, to the narrative pace slowing way down. Why? Because Mark wants to show us the Passion Week. And he spends more time than any other gospel writer on the Passion Week and what Jesus actually is moving towards and accomplishing as Messiah, Son of God, King and Lord. It's amazing. There's an early historian called Papias. He was the Bishop of Hierapolis in about 120 AD. And he actually writes about Mark's relationship with John and Peter. And actually celebrates him, not a Christian, but like, like celebrate, there's Christian, non-Christian historians celebrating his literary artwork. Like the stuff that he actually wrote and his, his careful recording of the life and teaching of Jesus. Okay, that's number one. Number two, we want to understand a little bit about Mark's gospel itself. The writing itself, the record that we have from Mark. Well, we know it's actually, it's the shortest of the gospels, but it's also the earliest. Most scholars will put it between 50 and 60 A.D., that's extremely early based on what the church is experiencing. Not 1950 or 1960. I'm talking like 60, the year 60, okay? We, we know this because Luke, when he writes his gospel throughout the 60s and 70s, he uses Mark. So Mark's gospel is already in circulation across the Jewish and Gentile world at that point. So again, we have a very early record and it is extremely fast paced. What you'll see, this is your homework this week, okay? Your homework is to sit down with Mark and read it in one sitting, okay? That's your homework. I'm telling you, it will change drastically how you see scripture when you start practicing this. It takes about an hour and a half, maybe two hours for slower readers, but about an hour and a half to sit down and read it in one kind of sitting. And what you'll notice is 42 times Mark uses the word immediately. Immediately, immediately. You're like, how can everything happen immediately, Mark? What are you doing, right? We'll get into this more next week. But this is a key word that he uses to not just talk about a dramatic pace of the narrative, but he's actually doing it. It's theological language that we'll see next week. He's doing it to show something true about Jesus and the way that Jesus is calling his disciples on. It's amazing. Okay, so we'll get there. That's just a teaser for you. Mark is also very, very... Uh, diverse in the settings that we get to see. So we get to see public and private settings in homes and out in the public square. 
We get to hear about eyewitness accounts of Jesus. We get to see tons of miracles. He actually records more miracles than any other gospel writer. And we see sermons, of course, and a few parables. But the tension and the characters, the present tense, kind of dramatic pace of the narrative is undeniable. And Gospel of Mark, although the shortest, uses the word gospel more than any other gospels. And that's because Mark's whole point is that he is trying to announce this thing. He's trying to get us to understand that the good news of Jesus arriving and doing what he's done is something that we actually can still experience and be caught up into. So he uses the word gospel very, very often. Now, early church history and um, early church tradition places Mark in Rome when he writes the gospel. Why that's important is because we see little hints of this, because we also know that Peter was in Rome preaching around 50 or 60. Okay, so we're seeing these things. Remember, as we talk through Christ Christianity, again, we're not talking through myths and people sitting in a circle making up stories. We're talking about these things being planted and embedded in historical events, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ is not kind of good advice for you and I to follow. It's good news that historically took place that now we have a responsibility to examine, look at, and consider. You with me on that? So we could get to see some of these historical strands. So if you're not a historian and this is boring, this is important to understand. That he's in Rome, and now why this is important is because we do know that he wrote his gospel for both Jews and Gentiles, but he goes out of his way to explain Jewish things to his audience, which tells us that he was probably mainly targeting his audience was Gentiles, non-Jews. He translates Aramaic phrases for his audience, which a Jew wouldn't need that translation, and he often will explain different Jewish customs in more detail because his non-Jewish audience wouldn't understand. So that's going to be helpful for all of us. Amen? Where Mark is actually to take time to speak to you and I about some of the things in the backdrop that we might not be familiar with. Last note on the historical backdrop, there was a lot going on in Rome at the time. It was wild. It was absolute chaos. And Israel, as a nation state, had actually just gone to war with Rome. Right? So we're not talking about kind of a peaceful time. The church is just hanging out, doing their thing. It was actually called the Great Jewish Revolt of between 66 and the year 70. Jesus is going to talk about that in his prophecy of, of the end times and the destruction of the temple a little bit later in Mark. But it is during the reign of Nero. If you know anything about Nero, the guy was an absolute psychopath as Caesar. He eventually does lose his mind, set fire to Rome himself, and then blame the church for the setting of to fire of Rome or setting of Rome to fire, whatever, right? And then he eventually does kill himself. And two years after Nero, there's four Caesars and they just keep killing each other, right? So it's just utter chaos as far as the political environment and some of the cultural things. Listen to what the Roman historian Tacitus said about Nero. Watch this. Following Nero's command, he said, let the Christians be entirely exterminated. They were made the subjects of sport. They were covered in hides of wild animals. They were worried to death by dogs, just, just tormented, nailed to crosses, crucified, set on fire. And when the day had waned, they were burned at the stake to serve as evening lights in his garden. Because we're talking about a legit psychopath who in the wake of Jesus is trying to exterminate the people of Jesus, right? So last week, remember with Easter, we saw that. How do you kill a movement? Well, you kill the leader. Problem is they killed the leader and he got back up. And then they kept killing all the people following him and they just went to death, right? So there's something already very, very unique happening in the movement of the Jesus people. There's something about the way of Jesus that is extremely different than anything on offer at the time in the Roman Empire and still to us today. And that's extremely important. So what did all this war and chaos do? Well, it drove the church into exile. It drove the church into what's called the diaspora. So they weren't able to just function in public affairs like normal citizens of the Roman Empire. They had to go underground. So all the betrayal and the bloodshed and the warfare and the chaos means that the Christians in Mark's day are actually living in unprecedented times with war, political dysfunction of all kind, and specific targeted persecution of their life. And then Mark writes this gospel. 
So now you can probably pick up a little bit about why it's so exciting. Because Mark is living in pretty urgent times. He really wants to get this gospel out, okay? So watch how he starts. Starting in Mark 1, the opening sentence is also his title. Often in the ancient world, the opening sentence of a manuscript would be the title, mainly because papyrus was very expensive, so they couldn't do like, about the author. My name is Mark, right? Couldn't do any of that. Couldn't do a preface. Couldn't do acknowledgments. Thanks, mom, for all the time, right? Couldn't do any of that. He just had to start. And watch how he starts his gospel. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it was written in Isaiah the prophet, Look, behold, I send my messenger before you, who will prepare the way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make way for him. Right away, right out the gate, we see Mark is excited and he starts by saying, The beginning of the gospel the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, if you notice the difference between how Mark starts versus some of our reading of Matthew or John or Luke, what you'll notice is Mark doesn't waste any time. Not that talking about genealogies is a waste of time. I know you guys love genealogies, right? But what he doesn't do is he doesn't track the family origin of Jesus. He doesn't talk about Jesus being born. He doesn't do any of that that the other gospel writers do. So rather than zoom in on family origins and events that lead up to Jesus' arrival, like Matthew and Luke do, or the theological significance of Jesus' arrival, like John does, Mark, right out the gate, focuses on the identity of Jesus, specifically how it relates to what Jesus actually came to do. And notice that he uses the word gospel. Now, you and I are familiar with this word because anybody can do gospel, gospel music, or we can talk about preaching the gospel, or gospel is a genre of music, or gospel is something I tell my neighbors who don't know Jesus, right? But in the first century context, right away, when Mark comes out and uses this term gospel, in Greek, it's euangelion, say euangelion. And what it meant, it was a technical term that was familiar to everybody. It was for the good announcement of something that's a big deal. It was good news. That's why we call the gospel good news. Usually it was used for a military victory or maybe some type of a relief in the land with the end of a famine. There would be a euangelion of the end of the famine or a political switch where you went from a tyrant to somebody who's not anymore. There'd be a euangelion about the new king, the new ruler. And historians have found a famous Latin inscription that says this. Check this out. This is crazy. The beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. The beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. Euangelion divi filius. Mark takes this verbatim to confront the fact that that is not the real good news. He does it to troll the power of the Roman Empire, thinking that it is by coercion and top-down power that this kingdom comes in to take over, to inbreak into history, and actually move towards a new creation, a new heaven, a new earth, new people. And Mark does it intentionally to confront that, to confront the gospels of his day. And there's ancient coins. You can Google it this week. Google some of the Caesar's Roman coins and all of them will say good news of God's son or the short form God's son. So this is very, very brazen. This is very bold and super significant where as soon as that first sentence is read, everyone's ears would perk up. They would go, wait, what? There's a new Caesar? And he's like, no, 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 far better. Way better, way more than a new Caesar. This is good news that you have never heard before. This news is so good that it is going to change not just the political environment, not just persecution and give us some temporary relief, but it's actually going to change everything for everyone, everywhere. It's good news. That's why he's excited. And by starting here, he's confronting the alternative non-gospels of his day. Church, this is important because it is the same for us today. This week, you believed false gospels. This week, you spoke alternative gospels. This week, you were influenced by alternative versions of good news, alternative offers of relief and hope. You and I looked and, ch and chased therapeutic mechanisms this week based on them being good news for us. And Mark is doing that right from the jump so that we would 
have our misplaced hopes and we would shift them to the only good news that ultimately delivers on what it announces. That's what Mark is doing here. Everyone has good news, whether you're religious or not. We all have good news that we believe. We all have a gospel that we live by. We all have something that we put our hope and trust in so that that thing or scenario or standard of living would, would actually release me and deliver me from mediocrity. It would take things that are bad and make them good. And usually it's at the end of a sentence like, if only fill in the blank, then fill in the blank. If only this could happen. If only this candidate was in power. If only this kind of theology or if only this kind of financial situation, then I would be. That's a good news statement. That's an announcement of a gospel. And ultimately, if we pay attention to our culture today and we pay attention to our own heart, we will see this everywhere. We will see alternative definitions of who we are and who we're supposed to be. We'll see alternative definitions of, of why we are and what our purpose is and what it means to be human. We don't even know what it means to be human anymore. What it means to actually define a person. We'll see alternative definitions of what is right and wrong, good and true, beautiful and worth our life. We'll see different definitions of what's supposed to fix us. What's our problem? What's supposed to fix us? You can give all sorts of economic, political, social, sexual, romantic definite answers to that question. That's all we need. We just need that. And they're misplaced hopes because they're misannounced gospels because they can't deliver on what they claim. And that's what Mark is getting at here. Mark wants us to see right from the beginning of his record of the gospel that this gospel the gospel that he is about to show us, the gospel that he is about to announce and, and, and allow us to be eyewitnesses of ourself, that this gospel is announced by Jesus. It is about Jesus and it's brought by Jesus. It all comes back to Jesus. And notice the key word, it's the beginning of the gospel. I love this. That means something is about to happen. You with me on that? When something's beginning, it means it's not over, Amen. It's the beginning of the gospel. So he's saying right here, that's the beginning of the gospel. That means that we are still in, caught up in the process and power and outworking of the gospel. Because if the gospel began there in who Jesus is, in what Jesus said and what Jesus brought, then you and I are invited into the continuing power and work of the gospel. And that's the rest of Mark. This gospel, who Jesus is. This gospel, what Jesus preached. This gospel, what Jesus did. This gospel, what Jesus brought. Now, if you ask most people to define the gospel, we'll usually say something like, well, Jesus came and died for our sins and rose from the dead so that we can be forgiven and go to heaven when we die. Now, I know that's oversimplified and much of, many of us in the room would do better, but this is so just normal in our culture that we just kind of say it. And we become overly familiar with what I would say when that sentence, now, is that wrong? Well, no, but the gospel's not less than that. It's definitely more. Are you with me on that? That's an incomplete gospel. Because right there, we just went from Jesus being alive, then being dead, then being alive again, and then me getting to go to heaven. There's all sorts of stuff missing from there. Are you with me on that? On the gospel. Like, what, what, what about Jesus' life? What about everything he did between, like, being born and dying? What about all that? Is that the gospel too? What about our whole life? Not just like, oh, I'm forgiven, heaven, right? Like, what about everything else? What about my day-to-day -day struggles and, and, and hopes and dreams and, and successes and enjoyment? Like, what about all that? Is that the gospel? Yes. Mark is going to show us all of the different multifaceted beauty of the gospel as it pertains to our whole life, as it pertains to whole life, full, holistic life that is full of the life of God. And when he starts here with the beginning, where does that hyperlink us to right away? Come on, church. In the beginning, where does it take us? transports us right back to the garden, okay? Mark loves this. There's three key motifs that Mark comes back to over and over again. He loves to bring us back to the garden in the beginning. He loves to stress what's going on with Israel and he loves to talk about Rome. So these key motifs pop up over and over and over again. So we're gonna see Easter eggs everywhere, okay? Why does Mark transport us all the way back to the garden? Because what he's trying to say is although this is the beginning of the inbreaking of the gospel, he's trying to show us that this actually, this gospel, gospel started in the garden. 
It didn't start right here. It actually started with the God who was in the garden. If you remember anything about Genesis, it is a book of beginnings. So Mark is saying, this is also a book of beginnings. And in Genesis, the first sentence in Genesis, it's also a title and a summary of the book. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a summary statement. That's a summary statement about God doing everything, right? The origin of time, the beginning, the origin of space, heavens, and the origin of matter, the earth, all find itself wrapped up in that sentence. But notice where the beginning starts. Notice that it is in the beginning. What's the next word in Genesis? God. Everyone's like, Jesus. Yes. But in the beginning, God. So that this story is actually not going to be about something happening. It's not going to be about a, a, a something. It's going to be about a someone. That it doesn't start with an event at all. It doesn't start with just some event out there with gas exploding. It starts with a person, a personal God. And that this story is going to be about who this God is. Uh, this God speaks and his word gives life. Anybody can do that? Did you do that this week? I mean... No, anyone? I tried. I tried with my kids. I tried to like speak and then it like manifests. Our culture tries. Just like speak. Like, you know, speak it into existence, man. If you, can you just sit with the absurdity of that statement? Just like 10 seconds. I like, just speak. Like, it's absurd. And then we say it. And then we're like, yeah, that's helpful. Right? And then we go read self-help books about how you can just speak it. Speak it, man. Speak it. Right? As if we can speak and it becomes life. Right? No, no. We can't do that. We were the ones created by the one who speaks and makes life. And that's why it starts with, with him. And he's knowable through his word. And that we are created to know who this God is through creation. And it's good news. You notice that? In Genesis 1, it's all good. That when God speaks, it's good. That there's good news. There's an announcement of something good. And then life happens. Mark is pulling all of this forward for us to hyperlink us back to the garden to show us that this gospel is a new beginning. It's a brand new creation. It's a brand new heaven, a brand new earth, a brand new image bearing status that is bought, purchased and secured for us in the image of God, Jesus Christ, the son of God. It's amazing what Mark is, I told you he's a literary genius, right? That's everything that Mark is doing here. And if you remember from Genesis one, the creation narrative is going and then we get to this kind of crown jewel, the image of God. That humanity is created in the image of God. And in the ancient Near East, that word image was used for idols and kings. So the Pharaoh was an image of God. And in Rome, the Caesar was an image of God. It represented a physical representation of a God. But in Genesis, it flips it all on its head and shows that not just kings and Caesars and pharaohs are the image of God, but that all men and women are equally bearing the image of God. And that's what's so revolutionary about Genesis. And that's why Mark starts here. One commentator speaks about kind of this image of God thing in the ancient Near East and says this, images were placed in a temple and the, the place where gods and humans were supposed to connect. The idol, the image, then functioned as a reflection of that God. It was not thought of as an actual deity. Rather, it was meant to be an image of the divine. The idol stood there as the mediating representation of the God's power and presence. The image of God was also a title reserved for kings. These special chosen rulers were representations of those gods ruling and reigning on their behalf. And that's exactly why Genesis is revolutionary because it says that is what belongs to all of us that if we bear the imprint of the creator, that we all have that image-bearing status, that we're actually called to reflect him, that we're actually called to represent him, that we're actually given a mission and a job description as image-bearers to go and what? Be fruitful and multiply, to go out and take care of, co-rule over everything that he has given us. What this means for you and I, especially culturally, is that you and I are not self-defined. You with me on that? We don't get to define ourselves. We are not self-defined. We're defined by our relationship to the God who created us because we were created to know God and reflect God. And we have a responsibility and a job description to go out and live life that flourishes as a reflection of the nature and character of that God. And today, we define ourselves by anything but God. And it's crushing us. And it's killing us. And it's leaving us depressed and broken 
and desperately searching for some type of transcendent meaning and value. We don't have a worldview that actually backs this up. But as image bearers in the gospel, the gospel of Genesis and the gospel of Mark, we do. Culturally, we tend to define ourselves by what we do or what we accomplish or what we don't do and avoid. At least I'm not like those guys or, or what we have. It's my possessions or it's where I live or it's, it's kind of material things that I can acquire or amass or how I feel. We define who I am by how I feel. Fill in the blank. I am depressed or I am anxious or I, I am whatever it is, right? And that's all culture can offer us. But this identity in the gospel is so much more than that. Because what we see from Genesis 1 is that human beings as image bearers are simultaneously part of God's creation, but also set apart from God's creation. They are part of, but also set apart. If you remember how the story goes, our core problem is that we failed at that job description, right? We failed at representing God well. We failed and our core problem is that we actually decided to go and pursue freedom from God and be like God, even though we were already created like him. And that's the lie of the garden. The lie of the garden is, did God really say? The lie of the garden is that the serpent questions who God is so that we would question who we are. And I think that's exactly why Mark, posing the question to you and I about who Jesus is and who God is, comes primarily to the secondary question of who are you? Now, we don't ask people that, right? You meet somebody. Remember when like parties were a thing? Yeah, when we would like, no, like party like together not on Zoom, right? And like you'd meet somebody new and what's the first question out of your mouth as you're getting to know somebody? Oh, what do you do? From now on, when we go back to partying, because no one will know how to interact in real life anyway, okay? Just to make it, just embrace the awkwardness and ask people who they are. Be like, oh, I'm, I'm John. No, no, but really, who are you? <laughs> just a like existential discomfort, right? Just like stare into their soul as you say it, right? Like, who are you? But we don't ask people who they are. We ask what they do. We ask what they have. We ask uh, what they've accomplished. We ask where they live as if those things are what ultimately make us who we are. But from the garden, we see that none of those things can actually tell us who we are at all and uphold the weight of the human condition and identity. But here's the good news of the gospel from Genesis is that that story and brokenness and the core problem of humanity, that Genesis doesn't just end with rebellion, amen? It ends with a promise of redemption. And if you remember in Genesis 3, there's this amazing declaration where humanity drops the ball and runs and hides from God out of fear, guilt, and shame. Anyone? Anyone this week? Yeah? Okay. In the garden, that's what happened. What does God do? Forget you. Forget you. Get out of here. No, no, he comes, he covers their guilt and shame himself. He goes and pursues them. He walks after them. He pursues them. He calls them by name. And then he promises and says, one day I will come and myself deal with this problem. I myself will come and deal with this broken image bearing thing that has happened. I will come and reverse the rebellion and only offer redemption. And as quick as sin enters the picture in Genesis, God speaks a word of hope and promise because sin will not have the final say. And in the Jesus storybook Bible that I read to my kids, says it this way. Before Adam and Eve left the garden, God whispered a promise to them. It will not always be so. I will come to rescue you. And when I do, I'm gonna do battle against the serpent. I'll get rid of the sin and the dark and the sadness that you let in here. I am coming for you. And he would, one day, God himself would come. That is exactly Mark's point. Mark's point in all of this hyperlinking fun back to Genesis is that just as creation itself begins with God, comes from God and is about God, so too redemption begins with God, is entirely about God and only comes from God. And this is the good news of the gospel, that you and I cannot do this and that we don't need to. And that this work of redemption is entirely a work of God, just like the work of creation. And that's why he calls it the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus, meaning Yahweh saves, if you know anything about Yeshua, the name, 
And Christ is not his last name. You can't go look him up in the Hebrew phone book. Like C-H, okay, right? Jesus, the Christ. Christ is a title. And in Greek, it's where we get Messiah, right? It's a title. And what it meant was anointed one. It meant specifically selected one, the chosen one. Great show, P.S. We just got on that bandwagon. Some of you guys bugged me about watching the chosen one. We're watching it. But Christ is, is a title that's extremely significant because it was only used of prophets, priests, and kings. And Mark is doing this on purpose to show that in all the Old Testament, all the prophets, priests, and kings who represented God in some way have only pointed us to the representation of God in Jesus the Christ. The big idea that Mark is wrapping up here is that Jesus' role as prophet highlights his authority to speak for God and as God. Jesus' role as priest highlights his role as mediator between man and God. And his role as king shows his own soul ultimate power over all things. And that he is the Christ. And Jesus' arrival on the scene was surprising and perplexing, but it wasn't a surprise. 300 plus years of promise and prophecy, 300 plus prophecies, sorry, and thousands of years of the coming Messiah, the Messiah, the chosen one who would do what prophets, priests, and kings couldn't do before him is wrapped up in the arrival of Jesus. And all of these prophecies show us where this Messiah was gonna be born, what their life was gonna be like, what their teaching was gonna be like, how they were gonna be rejected, their substitutionary death, resurrection, return, and eternal rule as king. And Mark says, I found him. He's right here. (laughs) It's his gospel. It's his good news. He's going to announce it. He's going to bring it. He's going to do it. And we're going to talk a lot about the kingdom of God and what it actually means in the gospel of Jesus. But right here, this Yahweh saves being Jesus's name is so significant because Yahweh saves is a refrain. It's a chorus that rings across history through all of the different prophets, priests, and kings of Israel that bring us to the prophet, priest, and king of Israel, Jesus himself. And that's why, and we'll do this next week, that's why Mark quotes Isaiah 40 here because he's saying there's somebody who's gonna prepare the way of the Lord. Now here's what's shocking about Mark doing this. Again, he's brilliant. He says, oh, look, it's the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Then he says, so somebody came to prepare the way of what? Not the Messiah, the way of God himself. And then you're thinking, oh, Jesus was the one to come prepare the way for God himself. But then he switches and starts talking about another guy called John. He's like, oh, no, 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 it's actually Jesus. John comes to prepare the way for the Lord himself. So right here, this statement is a blatant statement of Jesus' divinity. That it's God himself, that the Lord, that Yahweh saves, showed up to save. And last but not least, he calls him the son of God. Now you heard from the Evangelion talk that that's what Caesars were called, that they were called sons of God. And they were known to be an incarnation of Zeus as they ruled and reigned as the son of God. Often they were also called the image of God. In the Old Testament, we have kings called the image of God as well. And we have kings come and go and some would be all right, but most of them would be terrible, Right? And then there's a promise that kind of rings across the pages of the Old Testament that there will come a day when a king will come and he will fulfill all the promises that God had spoken. All of them, not some, not partially, not kind of mediocre. We saw that with judges that even like mediocre train wrecks can still be used by God, but not the Messiah, not the son of God. He's gonna be fully, fully the son of God and not as a son of God, like a Caesar with an earthly throne, but the son of God with a forever and eternal throne and kingdom. That son of God is coming. The apostle Paul reflects on this imagery in Colossians chapter one. Watch this. I've read this before, but listen to this. Colossians one, talking about Jesus. He says, Jesus is the image of the invisible, not a son of God or an image, right? See that? He's the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. He's there before creation itself. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. See that word image, right? That Paul's using here. That's the same word. That it's a representation and a portrait of God, but that he is the representation and portrait of God. That he's the very nature of God. That Jesus himself perfectly images God to the world. See that statement? It's crazy. A couple verses later, Paul finishes and says this. 
And he, Jesus, shifting to talk about him and the church, is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning. Key words. The firstborn from the dead, first fruits of the resurrection, that in everything he might be, underlined, double tap, preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to tabernacle, is the word there, to actually come and be in Jesus. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, everything, making peace by the blood of his cross. Right here, the key word is preeminent. And this is what I want to finish with as we reflect on this a little bit, that the gospel is not secondary. The gospel is not something we say every once in a while to unbeliever. Church, if there's anything you need this morning, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we do anything less week in and week out, then celebrate the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can ask me to step down and not return to this pulpit. Because without the gospel of Jesus Christ, all other announcements are false, misplaced hopes. And that it, the gospel of Jesus Christ is wrapped up in what Paul says there, the preeminence of Jesus. Not prominence. Not like helpful advice about Jesus. The, good, the, the, the gospel is not good advice at all. It's good news. It's an announcement of something that has already taken place, that is already wrapped up and brought by Jesus. And the mission of the church is not primarily any of the isms that we can throw out there. It's not about any of those isms that we see popping around today, distracting the church into nonsense. It's about the preeminence of Christ. And where does that start? Well, it starts in you. It starts in your home. It starts on your street. It starts with you and your neighbors. It's not gonna start out there. Your Facebook is not gonna lead to the preeminence of Christ. It's not. It starts right here in my heart, in my mind. It starts with me bowing a knee to King Jesus, the Son of God, the image of the invisible God, and giving him my entire life, all of it. That means this week, everything that was dark, this week, that you, the things you haven't told anyone yet, the things that you struggled with, the things that you haven't dragged from the dark into the light yet, that Jesus' preeminence needs to be there for us to experience life. All things. And church, we've settled for some things. The gospel is not about having a private, personal relationship with Jesus, but it's the renewal of all things starting with you and me. It's the restoration of order. It's the restoration of peace. It's the restoration of justice in all creation. It's every wrong being righted by the Son of God, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That's the gospel. So church, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That God himself, as he promised, came. And that because it was the beginning of the gospel, it means it still is. That we still get to experience this. That he still rescues. That he still restores. That he still recreates. And just like in Genesis, that he speaks wor his word gives life, he still speaks and recreates and gives us new life. And my fear, my fear for the church today that we can run off into all sorts of stuff and we can spend so much time talking about theology, so much time talking about eschatology, so much time talking about hermeneutics and interpreting this and politics and social issues and cultural issues and not do it to the glory of God through the gospel. It happens and it's happening. The gospel is good news because who you and I can't be, Jesus already is. What you and I can't do and never will, Jesus already does. You understand this frees us from the pressure of performance entirely? Like, like that you don't have to perform. Like, like for, for anyone, including the people in this room. Like we don't have to pretend anymore. Like there's no, there's no pressure for, for performance at all. You don't have to get your theology right at all. You gotta come and just drop your knee to the King Jesus. That's all. That's where it starts. And because he's the creator, he can also recreate. And it is in Christ that we are a new creation. So the beginning of the gospel right here is that God is not done yet. That he's not done with you, that he's not done with me, that he's not done saving, that he's not done pursuing, that he's not done changing dark hearts that don't want anything to do with him, that he's not done rescuing, that he's not done filling us with his spirit, empowering us and sending. He's not done any of that. That is good news.
we can't just know the gospel, we need to experience it. And if there's anything Christians need more of, it's the gospel. We don't graduate from the gospel and move on to other isms. We need the gospel. We still need the gospel. We need a new beginning. His mercy is new every morning. That the grace of the gospel is that every day we have a new beginning. And that we can turn from the misplaced hopes, turn from the alternative gospels, the different answers we've given to people, the different answers we've given to ourselves about what actually will fulfill and give us life. And we can turn from those misplaced hopes, those things that we've looked to to satisfy us, ease our pain, give us kind of therapeutic treatment. We can turn from all of those to Jesus. So we need this. And that's why I'm so excited in church. I'm telling you, sit with Mark this week and understand that this book, this gospel is not about you. The most freeing thing, when you and I experience the power of the gospel is when we realize it's not about you. It's not for you. It's not about you. It's only about, from, by, and empowered by Jesus. And then when we see that, that is when it changes us. I'll leave you with this. Matthew Cruz wrote a book called What the Church Can Be. We as an elder team have just finished working through it. It's been extremely life-giving. Listen to these words. We all tend to replace God himself as our ultimate joy with other lesser pursuits. So it's no surprise that we also build our churches to do the same. Amen? For some, good works in the community become the point of the church. For others, it's arguing about and buttoning down theology. For others, it's generating charismatic experiences. For others, it's realizing church growth. And other churches chase engaging politics, liberal or conservative. But whatever we tend toward most, we need to be boldly reminded that there is no substitute for God in the gospel. What is a church really? A bunch of broken people who were nearly drowned in their sin, now lying on their backs, smiling, inhaling the grace of God in the gospel. Stand with me. Let me pray for us to that end. Father, there's nothing in us that you need. We bring nothing to the table except for empty hands empty pockets and the sin that requires us to be saved. I pray that right now, today, the misplaced hopes, the other gospels that we have believed in and trusted in, that we would cast them aside and turn from them and put our trust and hope fully on the gospel of Jesus Christ that this would be the beginning, a new beginning. And whether we have heard this a thousand times or this is the first time we've considered the gospel, that it would be what we are unashamed about and it would be truly the power of God unto salvation. So right now, as we sing, right now, as we pray, right now, as we confess, as we repent, as we reflect, as we respond, I just pray that we would all unashamedly lay on our back gasping for air because we have just barely made it out from being drowned in sin, but by the grace of God saving us. And that you would return a smile to our face so we can celebrate truly the good news of you, Jesus, the power that is in that, and that we would not be left unchanged by this. We ask these things, the only name that matters or ever will, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.